let's get into the word of God here this morning um, as we look at a passage from the book of Luke, chapter 8, starting in verse 40. Um, this sermon kind of started rolling around in my head when we were at family camp up at Lake Geneva a few months ago, earlier this summer, and on one of our last uh, times together, there is a group, for those of you who were there, um, we told each other stories. And uh, it was a really, really encouraging time. And uh, so I'm calling this sermon, Stories Matter. So let me read for all of us from Luke chapter eight, starting in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader came and fell at Jesus's feet pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. When Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Church, this is the word God for the people of God today. Thanks be to God. I once was told that Jesus was the ultimate master storyteller. I hadn't ever thought of Jesus in those terms, but as I processed that a little bit, I realized that the parables that Jesus told were one of the things that drew people to him. The people loved to hear Jesus tell stories. In a mostly illiterate society, the, the spoken word, the verbal message was so important. And people loved to gather around Jesus and hear him tell stories. But there were these situations, and they were rare, when Jesus determined that somebody else's story, somebody else's voice or experience was actually the most compelling means of communication in that moment. And in those cases, Jesus was quick to figuratively hand the microphone to someone else. Such was the case in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus and his disciples had returned 
to Galilee. You notice in this passage, Jesus tells no parables. Jesus has no teaching. Jesus does not confront the religious leaders. All these things that we see from Jesus and expect from him don't happen in this passage. Yet Jesus makes sure that a powerful message is communicated to everybody who was listening. Here in the passage, we see that Jesus has two encounters with two different individuals. And these people are so obviously at opposite ends of the social spectrum, but they both came to Jesus with very similar deep needs. The first one we meet right away. And Luke tells us that this was a man and that his name was Jairus and that he was a synagogue leader. He was a man with privilege. He was a man with position. And, and, and these crowds that were around Jesus, they knew Jairus. And Jairus was the kind of guy they'd get out of the way. Oh, Jairus is coming. Move aside, move aside. Make way, Jairus. Jairus wants to see Jesus. Let him, let him pass. Jairus was that kind of a person. He approached Jesus very publicly and he came face to face with Jesus and then he dramatically fell at Jesus' feet and he told his story. Now his story was only five words long, but it was a whole universe in those five words because he says, my little daughter is dying. There's the facts. He put it all out before Jesus. But Jairus doesn't stop there. Jairus finishes the story. He goes on to say that, that in his holy imagination that Jesus will come with him and that Jesus will lay his hands on his little daughter and that Jesus will heal her and that she will live. Now on the surface, that seems a little presumptuous, right? That he comes to Jesus, gives him the facts and then tells Jesus how he wants the story to end. But honestly, honestly, isn't that what we do when we pray? Right? We come to Jesus, we tell him what he already knows, and then we finish the story. And I believe that's okay. I think that's our holy imagination at work there. And Jesus welcomes Jairus's request. And together they head off towards Jairus's house. Now scripture doesn't say, but I can well imagine Jairus is feeling pretty good right now. This is working. I came here on this mission and Jesus is coming with me to the house. Second encounter that Jesus has was with a woman. And everything that Jairus was, this woman isn't. She has no name recorded here. Luke doesn't know her name. She's chronically ill. She's virtually powerless in her society. Nobody gets out of the way for her the clear way for her to get to Jesus. She's the invisible woman. She lives in the shadows. And that's the way she wants it at this point in her life. Scripture tells us she snuck up behind Jesus. She had no intention of being seen. She had no intention of telling anybody her story, but she had a story. And she had finished her story in her own holy imagination. She created the end of her story, which was that she would just touch the edge of his robe and be healed. She had her request, even though she had no spoken words for Jesus. Her actions demonstrated the request that she had for Jesus. So we have these two individuals, very different people, coming to Jesus with very similar requests. 
But then all of a sudden, something happens in the narrative. There are these two really strange twists that take place in the passage. And, and as I look at them, on the surface, they seem a bit insensitive on the part of Jesus. I find myself scratching my, my head. Jesus, what? Why did you? But I'll let you be the judge of that. The first one comes when Jesus is heading off with Jairus on this very urgent, time-sensitive life and death mission. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus puts on the brakes. And the whole procession stops. Why? Because Jesus says, somebody touched me. Now, everybody in the crowd who heard Jairus knows this is a 911 situation here, folks. This isn't a time to be dragging your feet. There is a life in the balance here. And the apostle Peter is standing next to Jesus. And even Peter is like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Let's go. Everybody's touching you, Jesus. We've got a job to do. But no, Jesus is immovable. He has dropped the anchor. And he's not budging. Somebody touched me. And his body language says, and I'm not moving until this is resolved. Now, we can only imagine what's going on in Jairus's head while all of this is unfolding. Things were looking great about two minutes ago, and now everything has ground to a halt. Why would it be so important for Jesus to identify the person in the crowd, this one person that bumped into him? Why? I want you to notice something in the passage here, folks. Jesus did not have to stop. Jesus did not have to stop. He chose to stop. He chose to stop. This feels a little insensitive to me on the part of Jesus, given what's happening with Jairus' daughter at home. Jairus' time of greatest need. Jesus can probably do something about it, but he chooses to stop. The second twist in the story, the second unexpected thing, happens when this woman who did touch Jesus is finally identified. Verse 47 of chapter 8 says, Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. So picture this, okay? She wanted to go unnoticed. She wanted to sneak in, do her thing, sneak out, keep her head low. She didn't want to be seen. She's been caught. She comes and falls at Jesus' feet, kind of crumpled in a ball, and she is physically trembling. That's how scared she is. This was not part of her plan at all. Jesus does something odd here when this happens. He, he waits. He's patient. In a minute or two, he's going to say something to her. He's going to address her, but he doesn't do that yet. He waits. And she understands that Jesus, metaphorically speaking, is handing her the microphone. And scripture goes on. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Now, the last time I checked, most people who are asked, what are their two greatest fears, say public speaking and death. 
And this woman is faced right now with having to speak publicly, and she is trembling. She's the invisible woman. And in front of all the people who are silent at this point, listening, she tells the story of the last 12 years of her life. Now this account is recorded in both the Gospels of Luke and Mark, and when we combine the two perspectives of these authors, we find out all the details of the story that she spoke publicly as she was at the feet of Jesus. And she starts by dropping the bombshell. She, let's just get this out of the way. I have been bleeding, she says. And everybody knows what she's talking about, because there's no visible wounds, there's no visible blood. She's talking about that bleeding that women don't talk about very often, except with other women. It happens on a monthly basis. But she goes on to say, for 12 years. For 12 years. I can only imagine every woman in the crowd putting her hand over her mouth to cover her gasp as she imagines bleeding for 12 years. She goes on, I have suffered greatly. I have no money. I spent it all on doctor bills. No one has been able to heal me. I kept getting worse. I heard about Jesus. I searched for him. I snuck up behind him. I thought if I only touched his clothes, I would be healed. I touched him. And she says that she's actually confessing that she broke the Jewish purity laws because she's not supposed to be out in public at all. I touched him. Immediately my bleeding stopped and I felt in my body that I was freed from my suffering. I want you to notice what Jesus is doing here. He has orchestrated this entire situation so that this woman will have to tell her story publicly. And at best that feels insensitive to me. At worst it feels like bullying. Jesus is the male. Jesus is the one with the power. He's the religious leader. This nameless, powerless female has basically no say in this. Jesus sets her up to reveal a condition that she would only have confided in her sister or mother, perhaps a doctor. The greatest shame of her life, this burden that she's been carrying for 12 years. Church, this is the person Jesus could have healed silently. He did that, you know? He healed people at long distance. He healed people he never saw. And he could have kept right on walking, knowing the woman had touched him and been healed, and he could have just sort of smiled and kept right on walking. But no, he does the very opposite. He sets it up so she has to tell her story publicly. Why would he do that? Well, as we look at the passage, I believe there's two answers to that question. And, and honestly, both of them apply to us. Uh, but the first one is this, that Jesus knew that there was at least one person in that crowd that was about to need a very public testimony about the results of faith in God. Jesus needed someone to tell their personal story. A story of desperation, of rescue, of restoration. Why? Well, as we look at the passage, it's quite obvious that Jairus' daughter had died 
while Jairus was walking to find Jesus. All of what happened here in this passage happens in a very short amount of time. Jairus left his house, his daughter was still alive but deathly ill, but on the way, the timeline here is that she died. Jesus knew that. And, and, and Jesus knew that, that in a minute, Jairus was going to receive the worst news of his life. And that Jairus was going to be desperate for this woman's story. That's how much her story mattered to Jairus, even though he didn't know it at the time. Jesus is going to have words for Jairus, and they're powerful words. But Jesus wanted some flesh and blood to go on those words for Jairus' sake. The second reason I believe Jesus set this woman up to publicly tell her story was that her healing was not complete yet. You say, wait a minute, it says in scripture that she touched Jesus' robe and, and, and she felt healed and her body bleeding stopped. That yes, indeed, yes, indeed, her physical healing had happened. But telling her story publicly put the finishing touch on the complete healing that Jesus wanted for her. You see, when she finished telling her story, Jesus responded to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Check. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. What I think happened here, church, was that when she touched Jesus, her physical healing happened. When she told her story out loud publicly, she began to experience peace. You see, her story was out of the shadows now. There was no need to hide. There was no need to isolate. Her former shame had now brought glory to God, and she could re-enter society with her head held high, healed, and at peace. And when Jesus has his closing words for her, he says, be freed from your suffering. And I believe that's comprehensive. Physical suffering, emotional suffering, social suffering. Be freed, my daughter. It's over. Jesus took her down a very uncomfortable path because he loved her too much to only do a partial healing. And her articulating her story was integral to that complete healing that she needed to experience. Jesus was not being a bully. Verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. He said, don't bother the teacher anymore. To be translated, there's nothing more Jesus can do. Don't waste his time. But before Jairus has even time to draw a single breath, Jesus looks him in the eye and in verse 50 says to him, don't be afraid. <laughs> There's terror all over Jairus' face. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Jairus is probably thinking, I did believe Jesus. That's why I came to you. But, but what good did that do me? My daughter is now dead. She will be healed. She will be healed. Jesus, did you not hear what they just said? They said she's dead. These guys know dead, okay? We know, we know dead when we see it. And now you're telling me that she will be healed? Jairus has come to this fork in the road that a lot of us do many times in our life. And one, one fork is fear and the other fork is faith. On one side is, is the rabbi saying, don't be afraid, she will be healed. On the other side is Jairus' trusted 
friend or whoever came with the message, no, honestly, she's dead, Chires. Let's go start making the arrangements. Jesus had timed this entire encounter because he loved Jairus so much that he wanted him to have both the words of Jesus that he just spoke, but also the testimony of the finished story of this woman. Her encounter with Jesus had the power to give Jairus hope when everything seemed hopeless. I'm going to say that one more time. Her story of her encounter with Jesus had the power to give Jairus hope when everything seemed hopeless. Verse 51 reveals that Jairus's faith in Jesus overcame his fear. Together they proceeded to his house where his daughter was raised to life. Now I think this is a wonderful gospel story. I love this story. I love the ending. I love this story, but where does this intersect with our lives? What, what's our takeaway from this passage this morning? Let me, as we close, suggest a couple answers to that question. The first one is, I would say to each one of us here today, we have personal stories that other people need to hear. We all have them. We all have them. I, I was sitting with my youngest grandson, Winston, out on the soccer field one day. His brother was playing a game and Winston and I were sitting in the grass together. And Winston looks over, he calls me Pops. Winston looks over at me and he said, Pops, read me a story out of your head. <laughs> like I knew exactly what he was talking about, you know, because we're always reading out of books, right? And he, he has kind of gotten to this place where he likes to hear true stories from my past. He still likes the books. But he wanted me to read him a story out of my head. Tell me one of those stories, Pops, about you when you were young, when you were little. We have children, we have grandchildren, we have nieces and nephews, we have others around us that need to hear our stories. What was it like? What do we remember? Where did we see God at work? Our stories bring encouragement to the discouraged. They bring motivation to people who need to persevere. And we can believe from this passage here that that th these accounts of Jesus's intervention in the in the life of Jairus and his daughter and in the life of this wom woman, these became family stories for generations in these families. They repeated them over and over again about, yeah, what did Jesus do that day? We all have stories that people need to hear. Sometimes they're desperate for our stories. The second place where I think there's an answer to that question of, of, of what do we take away from this is, is we have church stories. Some of you have been around new communities since it was born and others of us have not. And we need to hear from you. We need to know where God was powerful, where he was faithful through the good times, through the hard times. We need to be encouraged by the past of this church family so that we'll have courage for the future. I hope somebody's chronicling the story of New Community Covenant Church Bronzeville because it's easy to forget the details as we move forward. But right now, every one of us here has the opportunity to actually help co-author the New Community story because it's a story that's still being written. And as we engage, as we 
invest our talents, as we invest our time, we are helping to write the story of New Community Covenant Church. We're going to have an opportunity today, right after the service, to, to participate in that. Sign up to be a co-author of the story that God is writing on New Community Covenant Church. And then finally, and I'm going to go there. We have national stories because of the country that we live in. And, and we have national stories that, that have been changed and twisted and, 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 and buried. But telling the truth about our nation and telling the truth about the actual foundations of our nation, those are the kind of things that have to be told if we ever expect to experience the healing and the unity that God has for people. A lot of us in this current year found out that a hundred years ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was this concerted effort to literally destroy a whole part of town where, where the African-American community had, had, had been successful and built hospitals and schools and homes and churches and all kinds of things and it was going really well and that became threatening to the white community so they burnt it to the ground and they massacred many people. And, and I was listening to the news one day and they were interviewing a, a, a young African-American man from Tulsa. That was his hometown. He lived his whole life there. He never heard about that. He didn't even know that was part of the history of Tulsa, let alone the rest of us in the country who don't live in that area. If we cannot tell the truth about what happened in the past, we're never going to be free from it. The fact that so much of our national story in this country was built on the backs of black women and men who were forcibly taken from their homeland, brought to this country to be bought and sold, used up and discarded when they ceased to be productive. We can't bury that. We can't deny that because we do so to our own detriment. We won't experience the healing that God has for us if we cannot acknowledge the reality of what got us here. We can't change history. Oh, believe me, many have tried and continue to. But we can change the present and that impacts the future. And a big part of that is telling the truth, the complete story, even the ugly ones of the past sins of our country. Let me conclude. God is writing his story on your life, on your marriage, on our church, on our nation. God's redeeming the ugly parts of those stories because that's what God does. He is a redeemer. But we, church, are stewards of those stories. We think of being good stewards of our money and of our time and of our talents and of our experiences. Yes to all of the above. But we are also stewards of those stories. We are responsible for those stories. And I'm so thankful that this invisible woman was willing, in the worst of circumstances, to tell her story. A story she never would have chosen and a, a story she never would have chosen to say out loud. But I believe it was her story that gave Jairus the courage and the hope that he needed in an otherwise hopeless situation. Your stories, my stories, our stories corporately are and can be every bit as powerful as this woman's story if 
we are willing to share them. In a moment, I'm going to pray, but I want to give you about 60 seconds just to be silent. And I just want you to sit in one question. Who would benefit from hearing my story? Who would benefit from hearing my story? God and Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for your word, your written word that you have given to us. And I thank you for the thousands of touch points that there are between your word and our lives. And God, as we consider this particular passage this morning, some people who struggle, some people that were afraid, some people who experienced amazing things at the hands of your son. We realize it could be the same for us. There's somebody around each one of us that probably needs to hear something of our story, something of our testimony, something that points to you, gives glory to you. I pray, God, that we will be a people that is generous with the stories that you have given to us. And I thank you for the story you're writing of New Community Covenant Church and each person who has, who has signed on to be part of that. I pray, Lord, even as we go through another transition here in the coming days, uh, that all of us will want to be uh, faithful co-authors of that story. And we do thank you, God, for what you are doing and what you are going to do. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.